Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about games people play. And bear with me, I'm going to play a game. And let's, let's play this game, listen to this game. Econ 101, minimum wages cause unemployment. A minimum wage is a price floor, and if that price floor is above the equilibrium price, there's going to be a difference in the quantity demanded at the equilibrium price and a quantity demanded at that price floor. That difference is unemployment. Minimum wages cause unemployment. Now this understanding, we didn't receive this from Donald Trump. We didn't receive this from the populists, from the demagogues, the Paul Krugmans of the world. We received this from Econ 101, just basic supply and demand, very basic truths about how the world works. That as the price rises at the margin, less quantity is demanded. Iron laws of economics. These are not words that are just taught by people going out there and spouting their opinion. These are economic truths known by people who understand second and third order effects. But the popular person, the person who has the spirit of the populace, who, who likes this folk economics, they don't like this type of stuff. This type of stuff is ridiculous to them. Econ 101, they can't stand because they're irrational. They are, they are not rationally minded. They are not concerned with second and third order effects. But the economist, he understands all this. And these people, their arguments, they do not sway him because he understands the science behind supply and demand. And who are we to override the laws of supply and demand? We have the mind of economists. But brothers, you know, you guys, I, I have to tell you this as if you guys don't understand what I'm saying. Supply and demand, as prices rise, the quantity demand falls. I have to say this in very explicit terms because guess what? You guys still probably believe the folk wisdom, the popular ideas of minimum wages, that minimum wages lift people out of poverty and don't have these negative consequences against society as a whole. You guys are still of the pop culture. You guys aren't scientifically minded. So this is how I have to treat you guys, even though last time I was with you guys, you know what? We sat down, we drew supply and demand graphs, and we plotted shifts in supply, shifts in demand, price floors, price ceilings. We plotted all this stuff, and you guys are just not retaining it. All right, this game we're gonna put on pause. So what game is being played here? There's someone in this scenario trying to persuade an audience to believe something about minimum wages, economics. What kind of language is being employed? It's creating two different types of groups. There's the in-group and the out-group. And the in-group are the economists, the people in the know, and the out-group are the people with pop economics, who believe in folk wisdom, who believe in populism. Populism. So is populism, is that a good word? Does that resonate with people? Folklore, folk wisdom, that stuff just screams 16th century peasantry, right? And uh, economics, econ, 101, this is academia. This is where you want to be. You want to be part of this in-group, the group in the know, and you don't want to be associated with these the demagoguery, with folk wisdom, with populism, which just screams ignorance, screams ignorance. So there's two groups being created here. The listener, along with being like pointed out specific facts in an argument, the, the persuasion technique going on here is them wanting to join this in-group based on this description, 
right? Because if they disagree with the speaker, they are classifying themselves as the out group. And people do not want to do that. The game being played here is an ulterior line of reasoning. So there's a straightforward arguments that's going on. That's understood. But then there's a deeper level. There's a lower level, almost a duplicitous manner of speaking in which you're using emotional techniques in order to manipulate your audience into accepting your position. That's the game. Using reason and emotion to manipulate an audience to accept your predefined conclusions. I'm not sure if you're following along very closely with the game that I was playing, the game that I set up. Did, did those arguments flow? Did they fit nicely together? Did you understand the progression of thought? Guess what? I did not come up with the sequence of events, the sequence of statements, just randomly. Instead, I turned to 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16, and into the third chapter, and I recreated the arguments of Paul, but applied them to economics. And this is really funny, because 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16 are often used by people who want to claim total depravity. That no matter what people could do, they can't understand basic spiritual truths. They have to be enlightened by God through this enlightenment method. But is Paul saying that? Is, is that his argument here? Or is he making something equivalent to what I laid out? More of an emotional appeal, setting up two different groups and telling his listeners that they need to be joining the spiritual group rather than the fleshly group. He's saying, these fleshly guys, you don't want to be a part of those. And guess what? Us spiritual guys, we already understand this stuff. So guess what? You guys need to be more spiritual. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 2.10. But God has revealed them to us, these spiritual things. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So he's saying, look, the Spirit taught us. Look, that econ professor taught us. Skipping down to verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Look, we have received not the folk wisdom, the populism, but we've received the training of basic economics. That we might know the things which have been freely given to us by God. That we might be able to understand second and third order effects in economics. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. We say these things not with folk wisdom, not with Donald Trumpisms, but just speaking scientific economics. But the natural man who does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, they are foolishness to him. Now the populace, they don't understand economics. Econ's foolishness to them. They'll say, oh, that Econ 101, that's just uh, leftist propaganda, or that's just right-wing propaganda, depending on what side of the spectrum you are and you want to dismiss economics. That's I've heard both of those statements, so it's kind of funny in that sense. He who is spiritual judges all things. He who is an economist understands the way the economy works. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? Who understands supply and demand? We have the mind of economists. Let's jump down to chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I couldn't speak to you as economists. I had to speak to you like you guys were laymen. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. You know, I sat down and I ran supply and demand graphs with you, and you guys seemed to be able, but you weren't, you weren't understanding that. For you are still carnal. For you are still populists. Come on, guys. Become economists. Start thinking for yourself. 
Paul argues like this a lot. There's an in-group and then there's an out-group. There's the false brethren, and the false brethren come from James. And they come and they assault him and they assail him and he fights what's for what's right and true. And he even, he even goes to Peter and he says, Peter, you are the enemy of the gospel. So there's the in-group and the out-group. And look at the hyperbolic language used against the out-group. They're false brethren. They are enemies of the gospel. Enemies of the gospel, Peter. Paul says, I wish these guys were castrated. We just cut off their man parts and that's what these guys deserve. These guys who are opposing the stuff I'm saying. Paul is playing a very serious game here. A very serious game. And reading Galatians, reading Acts 15, we understand his power struggles, what he's up against. People don't consider him an apostle of Jesus. He has to fight for his own authority. And he fights for his delegation through God, through Jesus, and not through man. Especially in Galatians, because guess who his enemies were in Galatians? They were disciples of James and Peter. And if Paul, if his authority came through James and Peter, he's just as good as them. His words are just as good as them. Instead, he needs to argue for a different source of authority that puts him on equal footing with James and John and the Twelve. The Calvinistic understanding of 1 Corinthians 2, just the end part of that chapter, is that that's about enlightenment. Paul is saying, guess what, let's, let's sit around and let's talk metaphysics. I'm a wise teacher and you are just, just a passive audience just accepting everything I say. And let me tell you about enlightenment, what it takes to be enlightened. It takes this uh, regeneration by God and then you could start understanding spiritual things. And it's just this nice metaphysical process. I don't think that's what's going on. Especially in light of chapter 3, in which he's calling his audience the same names that he's calling the people who reject the gospel, who reject the spiritual truths. He's calling his followers, the people in chapter 3, who are followers of Christ, he's calling them the same names. He says, you are still carnal. He says that, you have not been able to receive the spiritual things. They are just babes in Christ. So what's more probable, this metaphysics or the in-group, out-group rhetorical device? In order to establish his own authority, in order to create an emotional appeal for people to buy into his teaching. A couple weeks ago, I quoted a person who commented on a Matt Slick thread. And they were saying Matt Slick exhibits these signs of game playing where he has duplicitous motives and he's trying to get patsies, lure them in, and then create some sort of parasitic mutual bond. You know, that, that, that's Matt Slick's game. It's like, oh, woe is me. And everyone's like, oh, woe is you. And you're so sad. And we feel so sorry for you. But he's playing this game. This is a game where you stay something on the face value, but that's not really what you're after. You have duplicitous motives. You have, you're trying to lure your audience into saying certain things or portraying yourself in a certain way. And so this book that was referenced in this thread, Games People Play, I went out and I bought this book and I read this book. And if you're a strong reader, you might be able to get through this book in maybe about three hours, maybe four hours, depending. But the purpose of this book is to cover various scenarios, various systematic ways that one person tries to manipulate another person or gain benefit through through calculated interaction, very calculated moves. This book is about games, and this is not games like the Hasbro 
Monopoly. This is games like Stop Playing Games With My Heart. Reading from the book, a game is an ongoing series of complementary ulterior transactions progressing to a well-defined predictable outcome. What this is saying is complementary ulterior transactions are just interactions with other people in which there's an exchange going on and the exchange continues. Like just punching someone and walking off is not necessarily a complementary exchange. A complementary exchange is when you're trying to manipulate someone into some sort of position. That is an exchange with an ulterior motive. And it's complementary ulterior transactions progressing to a well-defined predictable outcome. And so if you're debating a Calvinist and you keep dropping keywords which trigger him into a predictable outcome of him falling off the rails and attacking you and slamming at you, that's a game that you could be playing. And that's a game I play all the time. Games are not bad in and of themselves. Go back to Paul's game. Paul's game was in order to gain prestige, to gain authority, to gain converts. And those are only bad goals if Paul was a liar, a fraud, a charlatan. But if Paul is a legitimate follower of Jesus Christ, commissioned by God himself, what Paul's trying to do is a good thing, even if there's a little bit of manipulation involved. The book goes on to talk more about what a game is and how it works. Descriptively, it is a recurring set of transactions. Those are interactions between people. Often repetitious, superficially plausible, with a concealed motivation. So if there's a man and he's trying to continually seduce this lady and he's talking to her and he drops systematic compliments over a series of days, he has a superficially plausible explanation. Oh, he's just complimenting her because he likes the way she looks or she, he likes what kind of dress she's wearing. But he has a concealed motivation, which is to uh, seduce this lady. So it's repetitious, superficially plausible, with concealed motivation, or more colloquially, a series of moves with a snare or a gimmick. Games are clearly differentiated from procedures, rituals, and pastimes by two chief characteristics, their ulterior quality and the payoff. Skipping forward in the book just a little bit, every game, on the other hand, is basically dishonest, and the outcome has dramatic, as distinct from merely exciting, quality. So the first example that the book uses of this is maybe an insurance salesman who will mingle with people at parties and he'll figure out what kind of information that's uh, relevant to his own profession from these people. Like, oh, what kind of investments do you have? And, and he'll look like he's making casual conversation, but he's collecting data to understand if you're a mark in order to sell his insurance to. The second example is this woman who believes she's oppressed and she goes to her friends and she complains about being oppressed and they complain about their oppressive husbands as well. And they create this social situation in which they could play on each other's misery for mutual affection or consideration. And, and they like sitting down and talking about their, their controlling husbands. And what does the husband do in this scenario is he destroys her game. He just gives her total permission to do whatever she wants. And she quickly finds out that she doesn't want to do whatever she wants. She would rather have that oppressive husband to talk about with her friends because her desires is for the gossip, 
for the social interaction, for this mutual commisery. On the exterior, the game looks like it's about actually having legitimate concerns about being oppressed, where the game's really about gaining mutual sympathy for, for personal reasons. It's important to understand what games are being played so you know how to counter those games. In this case, the husband destroyed the game by undoing her complaint. Her complaint was that she's oppressed. He said, do whatever you want. And quickly she found out that's not actually what she wanted. She would rather have the quote-unquote oppression in this case. And there's people like this in real life too. I think of the woman who always likes to cook for everyone. All the people who come over, she likes to prepare all the food and she likes to be the helper. But then she goes to her sister or her friend and then she complains about having to cook for everyone and that no one shows her any gratitude. But when those same people say, well, don't worry, don't do anything, we'll just go out to eat, she doesn't like that because that ruins her chance to complain and commiserate with her sister or friends. She would rather have this situation where she's both the helper and the underappreciated person because that gives her something to talk about, to commiserate about, and it brings her more personal satisfaction than if her problems were solved and everyone just ate out. And let's take that case that I just talked about. Sometimes it's okay to let these games play out. You don't have to just bust up every game that you ever see in your life because maybe you just would rather let that person live out their little fantasy world that they created for themselves in which they're being oppressed and, oh, woe is me, and just let them live in joy but the, because the alternative is them just being miserable and not having anything to complain about. Let's talk real quick about a game that I saw Matt Slick play. And remember, I read this book because of a thread in which this was mentioned on Matt Slick's actions. First of all, he does this kick me thing. And this is a game played where you put a sign that says, please don't kick me. And then sure enough, people kick you. And then you say, oh, woe is me. I am so oppressed. Look how mean everyone treats me. It's his way to induce sympathy through situations that you put yourself into. His payoff is he gets to eternally play the victim. I'm the victim. I'm being oppressed. I'm not the oppressor. And he is the oppressor. He oppresses other people. But he likes to play the victim. It feels nice to him. Having your living paid through your ministry and having a nice house with nice sound equipment everywhere. Oh, but he's the victim. The world just oppresses him. And out of it, he gets money. He gets influence. He gets fame. He gets sympathy. And he manipulates his audience. Oh, I've got so many problems. I got psychological issues. I got a daughter who left me. Oh, woe is me. You know, you don't hear me complaining about my son's cancer. I'm not out there fishing for compliments or fishing for money or fishing for sympathy. No, you, you grow up and you get over it. You don't just play these things off to milk them for their fullest. Here's what I do do with my son's cancer. I use it for like humor. Like I'll be talking to someone and they'll be telling me about their son's made up gluten allergies. I'll be like, oh, that must be very hard for you. When my son first got leukemia and that will, that will cross conversation wires. That will, that will stop a conversation dead in its tracks. And that's really funny to me. It's, it's funny to see the awkwardness because they realize that their game at trying to garner sympathy is probably not gonna work with me. They probably might wanna find a different mark. No people's games. So if you're on a Calvinist site or a thread and people just, uh, instead of arguing with you and debating points, 
they start just claiming that you're a heretic or something like that. What their game is doing is they're trying to signal to everyone else how superior they are to you. Guess what, fellow Calvinists? I have an opinion that you all already agree with, and that the person who I'm calling a heretic already knows that I hold. Wow, I'm so special and unique. Watch me be predictable. So their game in this conversation is smug superiority. They feel superior by belittling others and trying to tear down beliefs. And they do it in this social setting where they could build themselves up through mutual support. And a great way to handle this is to just attack it at its root and mock them. Mock them. Oh, it's funny. So recently I was tagged in on this Calvinist page by a Calvinist to give my input. And of course, right away, I'm just called a heretic. I'm called to repent. And guess what? I have memes ready to go in this situation. You post those memes mocking them. Oh no, I believe what the Bible says. And you think the Bible was written for human comprehension, but if people believe it with human comprehension, you believe they're a heretic. So you believe the Bible is just written to send people to hell. Brilliant. Brilliant, you genius. Everyone else is a heretic for believing the Bible. Wow, bravo. You mock them, and they don't know what to do. You have just undermined their game. You just destroyed their game. And how do they respond? Outrage. Outrage. And what, what are they going to respond with? They're going to respond with these further and further. They're going to double down, double down. You continue mocking them. It destroys their game. Because instead of looking like this superior smug person that they want to look like, they look ridiculous. Mocking undermines smug superiority. The mocking has to be simple, precise, and easy to understand. It has to target something that they value. They value the Bible. You mock them that they're calling people who believe the Bible heretics. <laughs> it is funny. Know their game. Understand their game. Understand what their expected payoff is. And understand how to counter that expected payoff. But again, not all games are bad. And we've already talked about Paul and the games he was playing with his audience. The last thing we're going to talk about is we hinted about this earlier that Jesus himself played games at times. Jesus had duplicitous motives in saying certain things at certain times to certain audiences. And this is explicit in the Bible. And let's turn to the Calvinist favorite proof text, John 6. Even outside of Calvinist circles, John 6 is pretty famous. Jesus feeds the 5,000. There's all these people. They're all hungry. He takes food from this kid. He has five loaves of bread and two fish, and then Jesus feeds 5,000 people with this food. We're talking about a rural agrarian society. You know, people say the daily grind. Well, people in ancient times had to every day give us this day our daily bread. They had to go out and they had to grind their bread every day, grind the grain down and turn it into bread. This was a laborious process. It was hard to get food. So all these people are fed by Jesus, a miracle, 5,000. And what do these people do? They say, hey, let's just follow Jesus around and he'll just keep feeding us and we don't have to work. And that's going to be a great time. Then Jesus leaves. He does the walking on water miracle. He goes to Capernaum. And guess what? The crowds, they follow him there. They want food. They want bread. And how does Jesus respond? Let's look at this dialogue here. The people, they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answers them and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, 
You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has sent his seal on him. This is a definite call out. Jesus is saying, you guys are not here for my teaching. He says, you're here for bread. But guess what? I'm the bread. It's almost humorous. He's saying, you guys want bread? Well, I'm your bread. So stick around and care about my teaching. You're not going to get like real bread. You're going to get me. So deal with it. Jesus says he's from God, verse 29. Verse 30, they respond to him. They're trying to prod him to get him to feed them. And they say, what sign will he perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're saying, well, the only reason we're going to believe in you is if you just give us more food. So just keep giving us food and then we're all good. We're happy. You're happy. Uh, we'd like to eat. Thank you. And Jesus says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he's frustrating them. They're, they keep saying, hey, we would really like some food here. And they're trying to manipulate him into giving them food. And he's saying, oh, you're really after me. I'm the food. Deal with it. And then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. We, we just want some food. Please feed our faces. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. <laughs> he keeps redirecting them. He keeps redirecting them back to himself. You're not getting real bread. I'm your bread. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. It's pretty obvious what these guys are up to. They're just prodding him to get food, and he's just not giving it to them. He's not going to give them the food. And Jesus is already insulting them and redirecting them and frustrating their attempts to get them to perform tricks to feed them. And now he says, All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. He says, You guys aren't the ones who believe in me. I wouldn't uh, cast those people out. The people who are truly my followers are the ones who worship Yahweh, which this is going to be another insult to these people. He continually frustrates them about the bread, and now he's insulting them, saying, you guys don't even believe in God the Father. You guys don't believe in Yahweh. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's saying, I'm from Yahweh. Listen to my teaching if you care about God. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. We've talked about this verse before. And this verse has parallel in John 17, in which Jesus reveals that this is a tasking. This is not metaphysics. He's not saying, oh, certain people are spiritually enlightened and they come to me. And there's uh, salvation by faith alone. And people are sealed and they can't fall away. There's preservation of the saints. That's, that's not that's not what's going on here. In John 17, he says, I fulfilled this tasking. This was a task that I could fail, but I used my effort to fulfill God's tasking for me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. And remember, he's telling these people this, and he's saying that you guys are not these people. You guys are not the believers in Yahweh. You are enemies of God. 
And they said, Is this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it he says that he has come down from heaven? They're like, what gives? This guy's not legit here. They, they're not believers in Jesus. They don't believe he's from God. They don't believe. They just want food. Give us food. We'll trick you into giving us food. Just give us food. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. What's going on here? What's going on here? Is this the spiritual enlightening that Jesus is talking about, that God only picks certain people and everyone else is forsaken and double predestination? No, what is going on here? He's saying, guess what, you guys? You're not followers of Yahweh. You're not. Good luck. You guys just don't care about what God says. And that triggers them. They are being triggered. I like how this is worded. Do not murmur among yourselves. He says, don't sweat it. You guys aren't the guys I'm here for. You guys aren't uh, religious. Go away. Bye-bye. See you later. You guys weren't called by God. You're not God's people. Bye-bye. <laughs> oh, he's triggering them something awful. He rubs it in. He says, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So he is aligning himself with the Father, saying, I and the Father teach the same thing. If you guys are rejecting me, you're rejecting God. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father except for he who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's saying, I got this personal bond with the Father, and you guys are just out of the league. So you guys go do your own thing, fine, and I'll talk to the people who God actually likes, which is not you guys, by the way. He says, most necessarily, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. There's the bread analogy again. They come for bread. They really want bread. They try to manipulate him into giving him bread. And he just insults them, redirects them, frustrates them, and just continually just lays it on these people. And then guess what? And guess what? He then makes them misunderstand him. He's purposely cryptic. He says, if anyone eats of this bread himself, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how could this man give us his flesh to eat? <laughs> Cannibalism, that's a serious concept in Judaism. You're not supposed to eat flesh and drink blood of human beings. That's, that's not kosher. It's, it's not allowed. Jesus is surrounded by all sorts of people that just want food. He frustrates them. He redirects them. He purposely doesn't understand what they're saying and substitutes it with his own teaching and insults these guys. And then he fosters misunderstandings to trigger these guys. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, he doubled down. He doubles down. He keeps triggering these guys. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. He's purposely being vague, cryptic, and insulting. What's his game plan here? What is he after? Let's skip down. Let's skip down. He's, he's talking to his disciples. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? They're like, What's going on here? He's just insulting everyone. He's being vague and he's saying things that we just don't like. What's going on here? And Jesus, he hears them and he says, does this offend you? <laughs> Jesus is trying to offend them. He, he's purposely offending them. 
What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? He's saying, what if you see me ascending to God? Is that going to offend you too? Absolutely, it's going to offend you. He, Jesus is doubling down, tripling down. He's just laying it on these guys thick. It's the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then it says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one could come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. And so he says, This is the reason I said this stuff, because I knew a bunch of you guys didn't believe me. And so I was saying very offensive things to you guys to get you to go away. Bye-bye, I don't need you here. And what does it say, the very next verse? From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So Jesus' duplicitive motives are described in verse 65. He had an ulterior motive for saying that the only people that are accepting him are from the Father. His ulterior motive is to filter out, to get these people who don't actually believe in his ministry, who are only there and they're after food and they just want miracles and they don't want to work and they just want to eat a bunch. And what he's trying to do is filter these guys out through offensive sayings. So he's purposely being offensive. He's purposely being vague. He's purposely allowing these guys to misunderstanding him because he doesn't want them there. He wants to filter them out and just get the true believers in his circle, those are the people he cares about. So Jesus' game is to abuse the people who didn't like him just so much that they would leave him alone. They wouldn't follow him around. They wouldn't ask for bread anymore. Abuse them until they leave. The specific phrase that Calvinists like to reference, and they want to use it for metaphysics and negative theology and their own little system of theology that's, that's uh, surprisingly just not in the Bible except for these statements by Jesus and others that are very vague and very isolated and not defined in context. So Jesus is being vague and cryptic to his audience and Calvinists will take those verses out of context and apply metaphysics to it. Paul will use rhetorical devices in order to convince his audience of his position. Calvinists will pull those out of context and think that Paul's teaching metaphysics. Everything that Jesus and the Twelve does is reimagined in this mindset that this is a philosophical discussion around a philosophy table in a classroom in which everyone's discussing academics, rather than what the context suggests is real-life interactions with people with their own thoughts, desires, and motivations. This is interaction. And sometimes, sometimes you got followers who have dual motives and you need to filter those guys out or else they'll just continue to follow you around and they're going to pester you your entire ministry and just keep trying to use you for food. And we don't find this story in the Synoptic Gospels but in John. Remember the purpose of John is to show Jesus in a more ethereal light, in a more divine light. And throughout this text he keeps pointing to himself. He keeps equating his ministry with the ideas of God. He keeps saying that I am the bread of life. You eat from me and live forever. It's really showing his divinity, and that's why it's included. And I like the little peeks into Jesus' mentality. Even the first part when Jesus is feeding 5,000, he tests his disciples to see what they believe about him. He's, 
in verse 5, Jesus lifts up his eyes and he sees the great multitude coming towards him. And he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread that everyone may eat? And Philip is like, uh, we don't have very much money. We can't feed these guys. I don't know. So the guy failed the test. Philip failed the test. Jesus is trying to figure out what Philip would do if Philip believed that God had the power to overcome these problems, but he failed. Jesus's ulterior motive was not a bad ulterior motive in this sense. His duplicity was a test to see if one of his disciples would fail, would succeed. At the end of this chapter, he asks his disciples, who do you think I am? And so Jesus uses leading questions sometimes in leading ways to figure out things about people, to see where they're coming from, and he's not always straightforward. And that should be obvious to anyone who reads the sermons of Jesus, how Jesus spoke, what he spoke about. Some of it's cryptic, some of it's vague. And it would be a mistake to take this vague crypticness and to just build metaphysics, uh, systematic theology off of these texts in which Jesus is purposely vague and sometimes it's to insult his audience. You don't want to take insults and just take them woodenly literal. Jesus calls his enemies whited sepulchres, the whited graves. We don't take that literally. We understand it's a rhetorical device meant to communicate something, meant to manipulate the audience, meant to convey certain things. It's a rhetorical device. It's also a game in a fashion. You're leveraging yourself against your enemies. You're putting them down while lifting yourself up in comparison. Not all games are bad. And it's very interesting to see games when played in the Bible by especially Paul. Paul's a gamester. Jesus. Jesus is a gamester. People are continually coming to Jesus and trying to trick him, to try to make him mess up so that they have something to accuse him about. And he continually figures out what their games are, what their traps are, what their moves are, and then he foils their games. Very interesting, very funny dynamics. But anyways, we went a little bit over our time, and uh, we need to end the podcast here. But if you have any questions, our new outro is, please send those questions to our question email box. And that is godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Just send any questions you have. Thank you for listening.